Please enjoy our live conversation with the founder and CEO of Magnetar Capital, Alec Littowitz, moderated by Ivy's Director of Strategic Relationships, Sarah Zapp. For more information and to attend live events near you, please visit ivy.com. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is presented by Smartwater. What makes Smartwater so smart? It starts with a little inspiration from the clouds, nature's purest source of water. Smartwater copies those puffy white clouds in creating vapor distilled purity, pure perfection. Smartwater also has electrolytes, which helps give it that clean, crisp taste. Clouds will always be the inspiration, since the water is vapor distilled for purity. Purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Choose Smart Water or Smart Water Sparkling today and at your local retailer. I am so excited tonight to have Alec. And I was, I mean, you read his bio, and you're like, yeah, pretty impressive guy. And then earlier this week, I had a chance to sit down with him and his team, and we were just going to kind of touch base. And it turned into this two-hour breakfast where I was so blown away by his passion and his inspiration that I can't tell you how excited I am to be able to share uh, with you uh, his story tonight. He is the CEO and founder of Magnetar Capital. Small little hedge fund, about 14 billion under management. I just want you to take in that number for a second, 14 billion under management. He started off at JP Morgan. He was with Citadel for years and growing it out. But one of the things that I find so impressive is his commitment to financial literacy and really helping people and especially kids understand that. And he's built a great Magnetar Capital U of Chicago financial initiative that's helping thousands of kids in Chicago really understand the importance of finance. And that's just one example of a lot of his philanthropic work. He is also quite an avid athlete as well. And I love this little bit of nugget that he was uh, the first all-American squash player out of MIT. And we could keep going and going and going, but we're just going to bring him up here and, and start the fun. So give us a little bit of, of background. You've got such an interesting story about how you've gotten to, to where you're at. Well, I'm not, I'm, so I'm not, I feel like I'm an old man now, but um, I guess it all started probably if my, my life started. I'm the youngest of three boys uh, who was raised by two psychoanalysts. So um, that's rough. If you know anybody who's the <laughs> son of one psychoanalyst, um, being the son of two shrinks is tough. So um, you guys probably all know the movie The Matrix. For me, it was like, you know, I was Neo, but I was not dodging bullets. I was dodging these really awkward, probing questions, um, trying, <laughs> trying to avoid trouble where I could. Um, I was pretty, you know, I played sports all the time. I was pretty mathematically inclined at a young age. I would beat my older brothers in Monopoly before I could read. I had memorized all the numbers. Um, I think that probably drew me eventually at MIT. And um, I studied math and anthropology there. And when I tell people that, they're like, that's a weird combination. Um, but I, I tell people this, that economics satisfies your humanities requirements at MIT, but it did not satisfy <laughs> my parents' humanities requirement. So they're like, we know you can count. You got to learn to write and read. Uh, so I did that. And um, I was there, you know, played squash. And then I went to University of Chicago, got a JD MBA, went to work on Wall Street, uh, big whiff. Not J.P. Morgan, but it was just a bad decision for me. Uh, I, I learned in hindsight. I, I lasted there, I think, eight months. Um, and just investment banking wasn't right for me. And got lucky, got a call by a headhunter, went to work at a firm that wasn't called Citadel Investment Group at the time. I was the 10th employee. It was actually called Wellington, um, but not related to the one in Boston. So um, I, I started there. I was the 10th employee. Uh, I had never traded before, never invested before. 
he brought me in to do risk arbitrage, which maybe we'll talk about later, but I had no idea what it was. Um, so he kind of just brought in this clump of raw clay. Um, but I was there for almost a decade and um, helped grow that from 10 people to 750 people, from 100 million to 10 billion. I, I built one of the big businesses there, the equity trading businesses that still exist today. Um, and then left when, um, you know, the founder is a brilliant guy. He and I just had different opinion around where the future was going. Um, I had a, I, I had a two-year non-compete, which I, I got three months off for good behavior, I think. So um, <laughs> I had a 21th month non-compete. And uh, I grew up uh, watching, like, the wild world of sports and TV, and I saw these Hawaii Ironmans. And I always thought, you know, if you saw me come on stage, I'm not huge, I'm not big, but I was like, I look like those guys. <laughs> and um, so I, I, I decided to try triathlons, and I had a short window, so I did a bunch of triathlons, some half Ironmans, marathon, and I wound up culminating in doing the Hawaii Ironman in 2004 before my non-compete ended. And then sounds like a real break you were taking. That <laughs> <high>. <laughs> well, let's put it this way: my, you know, if anybody who knows me, I, I'm a pretty perpetual motion machine. So when I was sitting around with my extra time in the house, my wife wasn't too thrilled with that. Um, <laughs> I started to try to solve her problems. She's like, "I don't need you to help me with my problems." <laughs> um, so I, I had to go out of the house, and that kept me out of the house for a long time. And then I started Magnetar in the beginning of 2005. Um, been doing that for 12 years. You know, 260 employees. Um, London, New York, Chicago, Houston, we do energy out of in a Minnesota office. Um, and I have you know, a lot of other passions and interests outside of that, um, very varied. I do endurance mountain bike racing now. Um, I love wine. Um, I, I have four sons, four boys. Um, so lots of passions outside of that, but that's get you up it's to funny, date. It's funny, I think we all have the same resume in this room. <laughs> <laughs> so talk a little bit about this concept of designing your own luck. And you've really built this baby, you know, Magnetar. What do you look at as that means to design your own luck? Yeah, it sounds bad because it's an oxymoron right out of the gate. Um, you know, luck is supposed to be into, you know, you can't plan luck. How do you design luck? Um, but the funny thing is I, I and I know, look, you, you, there is no formula for success. Everybody here is not expecting me to give them an exact formula that, that guarantees you success. Um, but, uh, but I was thinking about what to talk about, and I, I was in my office, and I turned around, and I, I've got this collection of four fortune cookies. And one of them, you know, the slip from an fortune cookie, and it says, you know, luck is the residue of design. And um, you probably didn't know that, like, life's answers are all hidden inside fortune cookies. Um, but I was struck by that, and I thought, you know, that, that, that design your own luck, for me, like, I break it down into the components, right? So what is design? And I would say that, that there are not just... Alec, but I see a lot of successful people in a lot of businesses, um, and even outside of business. And I think there are certain patterns or certain things these people consistently do to put themselves in a position to catch luck. Um, and so that's really what I was, you know, thought I, maybe I would try to share some of that. So, you know, I, I think there's there's sort of two that get you started, and then there's four to help you execute. So to me, design. So take it in order. It's almost like a roadmap. Design. What does design mean? Um, you have to plan things top down. Um, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's a phraseology for anybody who plays chess, end game before opening. And, you know, know what you have in mind. I, I love cars. Um, you think about Ferrari or any car maker, McLaren. They don't start with a bunch of screws and parts and go, let me see what I can build with this. They, you know, cars are born from sketches, not screws. Um, they plan it top down, and then they figure out what materials they need to do that. So I think when the first thing is whether it applies to your life, your business, um, your career, have a design in mind. You can change it. Feel free to change it. But you should have a design in mind at any given moment. 
Um, I tell my kids all the time, have a passion. You can switch it, but don't go through life ever without a, a, pa a passion at any moment. So I, I have the same opinion around design. So the first is design. The second part is the your. Um, what does your mean? It means, uh, you know, the Oscar Wilde quote, be yourself, everyone else has already taken. That's right. Um, you know, I, I, you know, there's a, a guy who I, I think is a philosopher. I can probably get laughed at when I say this. You guys all know him as a martial artist, but I actually think um, Bruce Lee was a great philosopher. And Bruce Lee said, be yourself, express yourself, have faith in yourself. Uh, don't try to find somebody to copy and emulate them. And I would say that. Don't, don't copy me. Be your own person. And so you have to define what it means to be successful. Define your own success. So figure out what you want to do, and then you'll determine what does success, success mean along that venture. So with those two pieces as your guiding lights, what, do you, what is your design and, and what does success mean to you, you're, you're sort of on the road. But we all know that the road's bumpy. I mean, there's, you, know, you might change your mind, you might change your design, you might hit a, a, a roadblock or otherwise. So there's these sort of four, four things, I think, four actions, I, I guess I would say, that I believe either protect you along the road, allow you to see opportunities to veer off to something better. Um, and you know, I would say one is um, you, know, uh, you gotta lose your faith in, in experts. Um, Lose so, your faith in yeah, experts. Yeah, yeah. Think about experts completely differently than you do. Um, the second um, is you have to reorient the way you think about failure. Um, the third is you have to embrace introspection. And then the fourth is you've got to learn how to unlock your intuition. Those four things along the way, in my opinion, um, provide for a, an adventurous life with a lot of journey where you literally position yourself to get lucky. So let's start with that, that first one when you talk about you know, losing your faith in experts. You have this saying of a, a beginner's mind. And that idea of having a beginner's mind when you walk into something ha has served you really well. Explain that concept. Well, let's start out with the fact that I, my first exposure was to the opposite of that. So um, my mom is the smartest person I know. Um, so I grew up just you know, give you facts about my mom. Um, my mom graduated valedictorian from high school at 15 years old. She skipped two grades. Um, she was accepted to MIT, which is where I went, but she went to Barnard, which is Columbia. Um, she speaks seven languages. She got a PhD in linguistics from Northwestern, became a professor. She then became the dean of Erickson Institute for Child Development, which is one of the most famous places where they think about you know, psycholinguistics and the adoption of language of kids. She then went on to become a psychoanalyst. Um, my dad's a psychoanalyst. I mentioned that earlier. But my dad sort of plans my mom's schedule, because my mom <laughs> is become you know, very well known. So there's a, for, you probably all don't know this, but um, like the New England Journal of Medicine for, 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 for you know, medicine, there's an equivalent in psychoanalysis. It's something called JAPA, Journal of the American Analytic, uh, Psychoanalytic Association, JAPA. My mom is the first woman, first non-MD, PhD, first non-New Yorker to ever be the editor of that magazine. So I grew up, and the reason I say that is I grew up with someone who was the epitome of an expert. She's an expert. And I just grew up thinking, well, that's like a tall order. I mean, yeah, I've never she set been a really a, low bar yeah, for yeah, you exactly. there, right? And how am I gonna like? <laughs> I just knew I was not an expert in anything. Um, and so, you know, and the conventional wisdom is you have to be an expert and have skill to achieve something. Um, and I just think that I've learned over over long, long period of time that actually is not the case. I mean, that's great. It worked for my mom, and we could talk about how you, you know, how you continue to be a beginner's mind. But I do think there's something to coming and do something fresh. A beginner's mind means it's sort of like saying, you know, bring your skill. Um, in, in thinking about problems and bring your humility and your open mind, but don't bring your baggage, your baggage of preordained thoughts, 
you know, what things should be like. You want to really start like that. And, and I think about, I mentioned earlier, um, actually now that I think about it, uh, when, when I mentioned earlier about going to Citadel and I'd never traded, never invested, like I went in, I knew, I literally knew nothing. And Ken Griffin, a uh, very smart guy who, who, who still runs Citadel, um, hired me and, and they did something called convertible bond arbitrage. And I won't go into the details, but they, he said to me, you do risk arb. Um, and, and I was like, I don't even know what risk arb is. So he's like, there's some guys at Bear Stearns, call them, they'll tell you what it is, and you can read a book, and you're smart, figure it out. Great. Um, so what it, it turns out, without going into too much details about risk arbitrage, that risk arbitrage is betting on whether two companies that announce a merger, whether it's going to go through or not. You're betting, does it go through? Here's the analogy. Here's a better one, actually. I used to tell people this. If two people came up on stage, and I said, they just got engaged, I want all of you to bet on the outcome of whether they get married or not. Which, what do you want to know? Which everyone does at every single wedding, yeah. right? You're standing there you're like, mm. So you would sit and say, have they ever been engaged before and broken it off? Are they compatible? Do they have, what's their backgrounds? It's all that stuff. You'd ask all these questions. And then you'd sit and say, well, you know, they're going to get married in six months. And, and you could follow along. Did they send out invitations? Did they hire a caterer? Did they, so that's what risk you do in risk garb. You follow this pattern. So it's all about gathering this, you're gathering information constantly. Half the time I was trying to get a hold of people to gather information, and half the time I was analyzing it. And I said, man, it would be a lot better, like a production line, if I could just analyze information and somebody else could get in touch with the people and go, oh, Alec, I got this person on the phone, you're ready to talk to them. So I found somebody to be like the gatekeeper, to go and I just, because I had no preordained notion of how to do this. I just like, well, this is inefficient. I just should figure <laughs> out a better way to do this. So I wound up hiring somebody who became the gatekeeper. A deal would get announced. I would not know anything about the industry. I'd say, I got to become an expert. You find out who the best people to talk to are while I'm studying stuff. And then I would then talk to those experts. Um, I don't know if anybody is in an in industry related to this, but later on, you, some of you may be familiar with these expert net, net, uh, networks that got created. Um, there's a bunch of them where you can call up somebody and pay for them to as assign you an expert to talk to. Well, I was doing that without way earlier, before any of those expert next. I just, it was for me, the beginner's mind. I was like, this is, I gotta figure out a better way to, I need more information quicker than everybody else, how do I do it? And if I'd started somewhere else in risk arb, that person might have said, no, 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 you make the phone calls, I'm not doing, I just didn't have any preordained notion of how to do it. And we, we, we kind of became well known in that world. I, I, the first 1,100 mergers that I bet on, I lost money in four. And that record was because I just had a better spider web. 1,100? Yeah. And four, you are yeah. off. Yeah, I was off on four, yeah. Three would have been better, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that to me was, you know, a, I mean, I was in wow. some ways lucky, I guess, to have started not having any preordained thoughts. So when you come in and you're not an expert in it and you have this beginner's mind, where do you get the confidence that you know you'll succeed? Well, I think that I think that that's that's where you know you, the, the, there's like a phraseology a little bit um, because I don't I don't think that I'm and I know for a fact actually because I'm in an industry with a lot of smart people I'm not the smartest person I'm not uh, you know the, the 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 person who's got the most expertise or other but that's that's actually not required I mean at, at the end of the day you have to have a confidence that not that you're coming in knowing exactly what the right answer is but you're coming in with a, a, an attitude that you're willing to learn from any scenario in any way. Um, it's, 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 it's often my, I have a son, I'm thinking as we're talking, I have a son who's 20 years old, and he had a summer job uh, this last summer, and he kept saying to me, I'm nervous, I'm nervous, I'm going in, and I, I feel like I should know something, like I don't know anything. And I'm like, that's however, that's, that's good. I'm trying to convince him, no, no, have confidence. 
that what you have is a way of thinking, right? That you've been taught all these years how to think. You don't need to know how to apply that yet. You can apply it and go in with an object, you know, very objective because you don't have any peer to that, just that, that, that humility, that drive and energy, and that beginner's mind, that's what you bring to the table. Don't, don't bring anything else. You don't need anything else. That's, that's, it's how most people have created great ideas and great wealth in this country, is coming at something. You, know, you probably already know this, and probably the audience does too, but um, most disruption occurs from people coming from outside of an industry by people who are beginners. That's just, you know, you could look across time, that's, that's the way it's been. So how did all those people create that if they lacked that confidence? It's they came in with fresh eyes to approach something and all they had was their wits. So that, that brings me to the idea of failure. And that was one of your big points of reorientating yourself around failure. How do you approach failure? So I, I, uh, I mean, it's actually a funny thing, right? So who's going to define, I talked earlier, you have to define success and failure. Um, so, you know, if I, I like my phrase to the audience, if you fail at something and you learn from it, is it still a failure? I mean, why isn't that a success? Why isn't it a success to fail and learn something? And the other thing is, is that, you know, to, 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 if you have this beginner's mind, some people in the audience may, may go, well, I've already been in this business now for five years. How, didn't I lose that beginner's mind? Like, how do, I, how do I get it back? And I often say, like, you have to be at this razor's edge. You have to challenge yourself in a constant level, right? You can do nothing, be in a state of stasis, and you'll never, you'll never learn anything new. You won't challenge yourself. You have to be at that point where that tension, that level of discomfort, that's where all the growth occurs. It's no different than in athletics, if any of you work out or do anything. You grow when you're challenging yourself and you're in pain a little bit. And that's true with that beginner's mind. But the minute you go to that, and I, I like to say, no wonder, no wonder. If you don't wander a bit, you'll never experience wonder. And at the end of the day, when you do wander, you're going to fail. Of course you're going to fail because you're trying something new. That's the point. So I would sit and say, and how you, have those moments felt for you when you've encountered failure in your career? It stinks. Um, it's <laughs> now that's not, the honest answer. Um, uh, you know, if you, you feel, I feel bad, but then you have to turn around and go, did I learn something for it? And what does it mean going forward? And I, look, I have failed more times um, you know, than I would like to remember. Um, and, you know, it is a stinky feeling. And, 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 and it, it might be that I've failed because I didn't adhere to what I said earlier. Like, I'll, 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 I'll give an example. I mean, a lot of people here probably know what reinsurance is. It's when an insurance company that insures a risk turns around and says, I'm going to go to other people because I want to lay off some of that risk. So um, we started a reinsurance business at Magnetar. And we did a very clever thing, and it wasn't me, some other people did, but it was a very clever thing, and we created this really diversified set of reinsurance. It was a very novel structure. We were reinsuring hail and wind damage on GM cars, bank vault insurance. We reinsured the Olympics in Great Britain. We reinsured fire and explosion in Peru. We did all these crazy risks, hmm. and it was really diversified. So I remember coming in, I remember, I remember what room it was in, and I remember what year it was, and what day it was. We went into a conference room, we were talking about our portfolio, and it's sort of like, yeah, we built this portfolio, it's really diversified. But the reality is, is that when you, when, when you go to GM and you reinsure their risk, sometimes they'll come to you and go, how do I know you're gonna pay? So sometimes you need a credit rating. You need to prove to them that you can pay off if they have damage. So we didn't have a credit rating, but we found a bank that had a reinsurance business that they had made mothballed, they weren't using it. We went, we said, can we use it? They're like, sure. So we put it together, we put money down in that bank in the Caribbean, and we said to GM, hey, there's money there, there's a reinsurance company that's rated, now you're good. 
Now, you probably know where this story is going to go, and that is that we got statements from that bank account. Your money's there. It's in cash. It's all good. Counterparty's all good. 2008 comes along, and that bank turned out to be Lehman Brothers. Now, that bank down in the Caribbean was supposed to be separate from the other Lehman Brothers in, in New York. It was supposed to be you know, bankruptcy remote. So we call them. We're like, geez, that's not good. Can we have our $300 million back? There was, our $300 million wasn't there. What do you mean it wasn't there? They had replaced it with things they collateral. They said, well, it's worth $300 million. What did we get? We got a hotel in Turks and Caicos, a Ritz-Carlton that wasn't built. We got some land in California. We got Mezlone. I mean, we got a hodgepodge of stuff that was hard to value at all, and certainly in 2008 didn't at least feel like it was worth $300 million. And that moment when I was in that room, that one moment in that day, we were talking about how diversified our portfolio was. I actually had sort of this moment. And I said, you know, we have all these diversified risks, but we have all this money in this one bank. And that was the end of the conversation. I didn't even think any more about it. I didn't think about it because I, I, I was not the beginner's mind. I was like, banks, you know, government's not going to let a bank go under. Like, it's remote. The cash is there. I didn't even think of any other possibility. It was, it was like, I'm an expert. I know that. You know, there's bank rules. No problem. And we had this diversified portfolio with one exposure to a bank, that went, the one that went under. Um, and so we dug a hole. For years and years and years, we struggled, worked really, really hard. The good end of the story is, is that we not only got our money back, but when the rebound occurred, we actually made money for our investors over long periods of time. But it took a while. And we had to negotiate and piece these different pieces back together. But that felt really, really bad. It felt like there was a moment where I wasn't listening to myself that I had questioned something. And instead of being the sort of, hey, that was a really interesting idea. What about that risk? Everybody was like, ah, don't worry about it. That was that moment where I didn't listen to myself. And, um, and I, I regretted it. But I, lear I learned from it. You, you know, one of your other points kind of leads to that. When you learn from it, you talk a lot about um, self-awareness and having a, a really healthy dose, dose of introspection. I can imagine you might have had to do a little bit of that <laughs> after having gone through that and some of the hard conversations you had to have. Yeah, well, I was born into that um, with you know two parents as I, as I had. Um, you know, if you weren't going to be self you know analytical, they were going to do it for you. Um, I can so, only imagine um, what your dinner table conversations were like. <laughs> I was, and I was the black sheep. I was, you know, my both my brothers um, majored in philosophy, so they would have these deep conversations and. And I was always sort of the more commercial black sheep part of the family because um, I was always interested in, like, how did it apply? What are we going to apply that to? But you're right. I mean, self-awareness is like, um, it's a, you know, that introspection is a, is, a really, is a really big element of it. Let me, let me try to explain why. Um, to reach success, you are we all, you're interacting with me right now. You're getting data points. Every day you go out, you're getting all these data points. Are you perceiving those data points as they really are? Because to make good decisions, you have to analyze all these things around you and figure out what you want to do to reach that design, that dream that I talked about. But the reality is, is that you do not see things as they really are. Your childhood, your background, gives you, over time, a lens of bias. You don't see as they are. You see sometimes things how you want them to be. So if you, if you, you have to understand you have that that, that a built-in lack of self-awareness over time that accumulates. confirmation bias. Exactly, exactly. And so how do you, you have to peel that back. You have to undo that layer of lack of self-awareness. 
And that's a really challenging thing to do, and people don't like doing it. It's hard enough to learn from failures. Forget about it. what is the learning about from learning from all exposures you have. And the reality is, you have to understand that you that um, you know you 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 think about um, going to school, right? You think about how you go to school to learn, right? All of us, I assume, you guys are here to social university. You're here to learn. So you've learned. You might go to acting classes. You might go to you know learn how to be to row or to play squash, etc. You go from people to learn from people. When and where do you go to learn about yourself? When do you take time to do that? And if you don't, all your interactions, all your exposures are through a lens, and you're not seeing the facts as they really are. I think that that's, that's a, a, I mean, I learned that early on in, in thinking about building Magnetar. Um, I had to understand myself. What am I good at? What am I not good at? Um, and surround myself with people that were complementary to me. Um, and if I didn't think about what I was good at or bad, I would, I would you know, create toxic mixes, I think, of people that were not one plus one makes three, but one plus one equals one minus one. Um, so I, I, I do think there's a, you know, if, if maybe a, the, the better way to talk about what is self-awareness, it's do you have the ability to judge your own ability? If you don't, you are not capable of looking at the world's the, the facts around the world in any objective way. Because if you can't hold yourself up under the light, you're not going to see anything else correctly. You know, I think sometimes we understand that theoretically, and we think, oh, we should take more time to meditate, we should quiet our mind. But how do you actually work to improve your self-awareness? So this will, you know, people will probably not like this, but I would tell everybody, go see a therapist. And it's not... <laughs> um, your parents uh, would be so proud. Yeah, they'd be proud. <laughs> I didn't say go see my parents. <laughs> um, but, um, but the reality is, is that there is no, you know, you, you, why wouldn't you? You go to school for everything. I mean, look, I, there's a lot of people who will say, no, 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 I, I, I think about stuff. I, I'm pretty open about what I'm good at, what I'm not. Really? So how many people didn't go to school because you taught yourself? I mean, do you teach yourself to basketball players not go and learn from coaches when they're younger how to grow? You know, if you studied astrophysics, did you not learn from somebody? Right? At some point, it's about, it's about having, being forced into that objectivity back around, you know, of how you grow. And I'll, I'll give you an example that isn't work-related. Um, I, I have four sons I mentioned, and I have a, a third son. And, um, and this is sort of like how I change. I believe your character is your character. But I believe you can change your behavior. And so if you understand your character, you can adapt your behavior. And I, I think back to um, my son. So my son is, is the one I'm talking about is 15 years old. And he took a Spanish class last year. And it was like the average level class. And he's like, this is easy. I think I'm going to go up a level to the next highest level. And I was like, great, that's good for you. And so summer comes. He applies for his classes. I'm on the phone talking to my parents. And I'm like, they're like, what's new with the boys? I'm like, oh, well, Nick has decided to challenge himself. He's going up to the next level. He heard me talking. And I later found out that he did not go up to the next level. He had stayed at the level he's at. Didn't tell me, even though he overheard me talking to my parents. So I thought I didn't react. In the past, before my therapy, I would have been, you're lying. You heard me talking to my parents. Like, this is like, I would have been really, really pissed. But I sat for a moment, and I was thinking through therapy now, around, he's obviously uncomfortable telling me. Maybe that's my fault. Maybe I did something earlier on that made him uncomfortable coming to me and telling me that. So before I go and complain about him, what have I done that forced that, him into that position where he was uncomfortable telling me? 
And that's the difference in act, you know, catching yourself before you act through having gone through therapy. I know there's a connotation, a negative one to it, but I don't understand why. Why is it bad for me to spend time with someone helping me understand myself? I just, I don't see any negative connotation to it. I, it doesn't mean I'm gonna, you know, I'm, boom, I'm brand new and I know everything, but I can catch myself and alter the behaviors. And by doing that and knowing my biases, now when I see the world and I see those data points, I think I can be more objective. You know what, my, my initial reaction is this, but that's probably because I'm, I'm being defensive, and that allows you to take in these data points, and if you have a beginner's mind and you can quickly take those in and you're willing to fail, like we talked about, that allows you to meander and, and go through the bumps and find opportunity, um, you, but, you, but you have to take in the objective, you know, be objective about the data points in it, my mind. It sounds like a real self-investment that you're very conscious to do. Yeah, I think that you're, 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 it's a struggle every day to do it. Um, it's very easy, I will tell you, to fall back into, you know, I sometimes something will happen and I'll have an immediate, like I'm about to say something and I'm like, wait, well, hold on a second. Just like, wait a, wait a moment. <laughs> so I think there's a constant reinvestment back into yourself. And I would say to everybody here, hey, you deserve it. I mean, it's, it's, you're gonna feel better about yourself. Even though there are th parts that you're not gonna like, understanding why it came to be and what caused it is really, really important. How do we begin to really unlock our thought process? Because you've really pointed that out as one of the, the, the four key things that, that we should take away is learning to unlock your thought process. Yeah, so, um, um, I, so there's, there's what, what do I mean by that? And then there's sort of the how-to part of it, I guess. Um, um, so I, I mentioned intuition. I said, um, you know, how do you get into unlocking your intuition? So what do I think intuition is? I used to be, I used to think it was hokey, to be honest with you. I was like, ah, oh, it's like your gut, people say it's your gut instinct. You know, follow your gut, don't follow your gut. I actually don't think that's what it is anymore. I, I actually think that intuition is when your conscious and your unconscious are talking. It's, it's, it, your unconscious has incredible power. It can operate at a faster speed and it is unbiased. Think about, you know, what's the ultimate unconscious? You sleep, you dream. You get into your dreams. You can do anything in your dream. Do, do, there's a lot, I mean, every one of us has had a dream where yes, you defy the laws of- Yes, we're all invincible in our dreams, <laughs> yes. <laughs> We've all defied the laws of physics in our dreams, right? You can do anything. There's no, there's no filter, there's no bias, it's pretty raw. And so if you can connect that to a problem you're having, it's like, geez, if I can have a high-powered, fast-speed, unbiased computer helping me solve problems, do I wanna do that? Sign me up. And so I believe that's what your unconscious is, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, or what intuition is, it's, it's that interaction between your conscious and unconscious. The problem you have is, is that everybody here is bombarding their conscious all day long. Facebook, Twitter, I'm here, I'm there. It's like a constant bombardment and it impedes that other conversation. Think about it this way, like we have multiple people, right? Conscious, unconscious, and what I do every day. If I'm busy this way, it, we can't talk. It's just the way it is. You have to learn to isolate that noise so that this conversation can happen. And you know, I can't tell people how to do that. I can tell you how I've done it, but I can't tell people how to do it. I call that getting into flow. Like I, when I get into a flow, it's, it's, I'm, I'm having that conversation. And the way I've done it is train myself is, is through sports. Um, you know, when I do endurance mountain bike racing, I, I don't do, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with running, which I used to do a lot of, and biking on the road, which I do, used to do a lot of. But the problem with that is my mind can wander. When I'm mountain biking, you know, I just did this six-day race in Switzerland in September. It's all off-road, 45,000 feet of climbing, up and down, the, you know, Zermatt and all the mountains. 
it's, it's dangerous. There's cliffs. There's not a guardrail. It's not the U.S. It's, it's, it's you know, a bad move is a really bad move. <laughs> and um, you're constantly making a thousand little decisions. Do I switch there, that rock, this route, et cetera? When that is happening, everything else has to be out of your mind. There's, there's, there's nothing else. You know, what is, I wonder what my wife's doing right now. There's none of that, right? I am at, I, it's, this is life or death. And that forces me to lock everything out. And I, I think about when I used to do homework um, growing up. I used to do homework in front of the TV, which annoyed my parents. But the reality is I wasn't paying attention to Gilligan's Island and Love Boat I, or Love Connection. I'll be back in two minutes and two seconds. Um, that's a <laughs> reference for anybody who's old. Um, but um, but I, I never did that. It was just I was, I was the force of taking my consciously eliminating the other noise meant that I was getting in this flow. That's why I do a lot of, I spend a lot of time, not in my office at work, but at a coffee shop around the corner. Because I couldn't tell you what anybody's talking about, but that noise, the act of eliminating that noise, gets me into a flow. So people have to find their soft zone, their whatever, and my flow is where I'm working to eliminate other noise, and I'm making that connection happen that those synapses are fine. I'm telling my unconscious, like, okay, I'm focused on this problem. I'm eliminating everything else. And that's where I've had my sort of aha moments. And, and it's just tapping that. It's just much more powerful than your conscious. You take in all these data points, and sometimes you just, you know, you know what? I just thought of that. That's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And I, I do think relying on that is really important because it's, it's unbiased. It's, it doesn't have the same problems as your conscious life. You just got to ignore the noise to allow that to happen. When you talk about the conscious and the unconscious talking, you talk about looking for patterns and that that's what intuition is. What do you mean looking for patterns? What should we start to, to take awareness of within ourselves? Yeah, so um, if you think about a bunch of data points, right? So you have a paradigm, right? There's actually a, a, a book, the guy who coined the phrase a paradigm shift, actually. It's a I've recommended it to a couple people that are sitting in this room, and they were like, that's so dense. But to me, it was a great book. But that's a you know, separate um, uh, conversation. But what it means, paradigm, is a prevailing set of rules. It's the rules like it could be a, 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 a law of physics. These are the rules, and all the data points fit in this, into that rule. But occasionally, in all our lives, in every business you have, something like there's an outlier. And you're like, hmm, that doesn't fit. I wonder, I wonder whether that means anything. Then you get another one that doesn't fit. And the question is, do you ignore that? Or is it actually something new forming? It's a new rule. And the world doesn't yet know that the old one doesn't work. The new paradigm is the one that works. My belief is, is that what's made me succeed in life is I'm very quick to spot patterns. I'm quick to make one or two data points form a new line. And I do that with intuition. It's, it's when is that to be ignored? And when is it, whoa, whoa, whoa nope. I just there's, it, something's not right. I do this all the time at work. People get, you know, I'm like, you know, we'll work on something and everybody's like, that's good, it's good, right? And I'm like, something just doesn't feel right. It's not locked in. And it's that And then intuition. everyone all of a sudden goes, yeah, oh, yeah, not so happy. that's going to be another four hours. Yeah, not so happy. <laughs> um, and it's just that intuition that, you know, and I don't know it yet. I can't describe it. I can't articulate to people. It's just something doesn't fit. And that's that intuition that there's something not right, that you're dismissing these things, but it just doesn't feel like we should be dismissing it at that moment. Those things very often turn out to be our new businesses. It turns out that we see something before anybody else sees it. Um, and we get into a new business that nobody else thought about because we were the first to see that 
The way everybody else is doing something no longer applies. This is now what's going to be the paradigm. They just don't know it yet. It's seeing that pattern and following that. We're going to go ahead and open it up to questions here in, in just a few minutes. But you've, you've had quite an amazing ride and, and much more to go. And you've taken a lot of time um, because of the work that you've done to, to look at the patterns in your life or whatnot. What surprised you the most along your journey? Well, I, I, you know, um, I, I, to be honest, I think that what's, what surprised me is that um, I'm, I, when I was younger, um, I, I was a perfectionist. And I would have said it a long, you know, I'm 50 now, so when I would, you know, give it, I can give advice now, but frankly, 20 years ago, um, I just, I did not like failure. And I frankly thought that fear would stop me from experimenting. Um, you know, and I, I say now that it's better off um, experimenting and failing than failing to experiment. So what surprised me the most is, despite the fact that my personality was, I want to do things right, it didn't stop me. The power of what I'm talking about, the power of experimenting, didn't stop me. The value of it didn't, I wasn't constrained by this fear because it was overwhelmed by the power of it. If you think about all of, you know, everybody here, it's a little like, and I think about my youth, like a casino. If everybody knows about casinos here, what, what do they do? What do casinos do? They have the odds in their favor. So they want as many people coming in and betting as possible. Slot machines, the odds in the favor, come play as much as you want. Everybody here, you're all young. Um, you have an asymmetric payoff profile. Like, if you try something and fail, I'm not talking about jumping off a cliff. You try something and fail, you bounce back. You have the opportunity. This is the time to do that. If it succeeds, there's huge upside. You're the casino. Make a lot of bets. Go do it a lot. I, I had that was the thing that surprised me is when I like switched that light on, and I it, it, like I didn't want to I didn't want to risk things, and then I realized, wait a minute, like when am I going to do it? Like I don't want the regret of not having tried things. Now I'm not saying every two seconds switch what you're doing. Um, you know we can talk about that. You know I'm happy to talk about that because I do have a philosophy around that. But I but I would say that I, what surprised me was the ability to knock you know whatever this is a promotional thing. But I was able to knock myself out of this little area of you know. But I don't want to try that because if I don't do it exactly right, I'll be mad. But I found myself getting more and more comfortable that that failure wasn't toxic that I could learn from it, and there was joy. Even in the failures, there was the joy that, like, I tried that, and, and it's leading me to the next thing. And man, and I've achieved something on the next one. I, I, think, I think it surprised me that I was able to break out of that, because I could have I sat in that little world. I was one of those people, but I kind of knocked out, so I'm like the survivor to say, you know, it's okay out here. You know, <laughs> it's okay, you can come out. You can come now. <laughs> you can come out, and you can play, and it's okay if you fail, it's not a problem. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is presented by Smartwater. What makes Smartwater so smart? It starts with a little inspiration from the clouds, nature's purest source of water. 
Smart Water copies those puffy white clouds in creating vapor distilled purity, pure perfection. Smart Water also has electrolytes, which helps give it that clean, crisp taste. Clouds will always be the inspiration, since the water is vapor distilled for purity. Purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Choose Smart Water or Smart Water Sparkling today and at your local retailer.